Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase it all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome back to another episode of AT Corner. We are very excited for this interview episode. Especially because it's first of the year. It is the first of the year, and I think we picked the perfect person to kick off 2022. Yeah, if you need some motivation, keep listening to this. We have Mike Stella on today. Yes, that's right. We said Mike Stella. So he probably doesn't need as much of an uh, introduction, but we're going to give it our best shot. So Mike Stella is a certified athletic trainer, corrective exercise specialist, and a performance enhancement specialist as well. He's the founder of the Movement Underground, where not only does he provide AT services, but he is also an educator, rock tape instructor, and provides mentorship for other athletic trainers. Before the Movement Underground, he previously has worked at the Division I level. He has provided care for many high-level athletes from the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, UFC, bodybuilding, and the United States Olympic team. Like I said, I don't think he needs much of an introduction, but there you go. Let's hear from Mike. As with any interaction, you got to start with some cryo breakers. So our first one is, what made you become an athletic trainer? Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, it's pretty easy. It's kind of the classic, classic athletic trainer story, which was I was an injured athlete, you know, and that's how it started. So uh, in high school, I was a uh, three sport athlete. So football, track and field and lacrosse. Uh, Lacrosse was kind of, I guess, my calling in a way that I was going to play that at the next level. And I was a pretty highly recruited lacrosse player. And then I was unsure of where I wanted to go or where I was going to commit to. So I figured I would just pay, play my senior year and I would make that decision after and, and figure it out. And then unfortunately for me, I ended up having a catastrophic knee blowout. So I tore my ACL, PCL, MCL, meniscus, tibial plateau fracture, you know, basically the whole, whole shebang. Oh, so um, Marist College, which is in Poughkeepsie, New York, was the last division one school to offer me any money to play. Um, and they happen to have an athletic training program, uh, a KD accredited program. So nice. it kind of just worked out in that way. I was kind of unsure at that point what I wanted to do. But once I started going, my athletic trainer in high school, she was extremely influential on me during that recovery time. She really went out of her way to, you know, to make sure that I was taken care of. And, um, you know, that really rubbed off on me a lot. And so it was just like, wow, I could really see myself doing something like this. And I, I kind of jumped into it and never looked back. Nice. That's awesome. I think people yeah. forget how influential the secondary school athletic trainers can be. Like they oh, have absolutely. such a huge impact. I mean, you know, it's like I grew up in a single parent household and, you know, my mom had two boys that were, we were the same age basically and played sports. And, you know, we just, when I hurt, you know, it was, that, it was the first serious injury that I had ever had. And, and so like, she didn't know what to do. She was lost. And Aaron, she was there every step of the way, like setting up the doctor's you know, explaining to us what the process was. We didn't even have insurance at that time. So dealing with the school's insurance and, and the doctors and physical therapy and all of it, she, she was just so helpful. And, you know, for my mom, it was just a huge help because she just didn't know what to do. She didn't have the, the mental resources to, you know, and again, this was in the early 2000s. So it wasn't like you could just YouTube it or, (laughs) you know, Google it really. Like, I mean, yeah, there was online resources, but it was limited. So, you know, we really relied on her, heavily to figure out those er- that early part of the process. And so, so yeah, here I am now. Like that was in 2003. So it's a long time ago. 
You know, that's actually really fascinating that you touched on the point that athletic trainers have more impact on not just the athlete, like you, obviously that made you an athletic trainer or helped you on that pathway, but also your, the family aspect. Like, I don't think we've even talked about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it was a huge relief for my mom to just know that there was somebody who knew what the hell was going on. And, uh, (laughs) and she had like a self, you know, a cell phone that she could call and say, I got this in the mail. What should I do? And, and Aaron really took care of all of it. We literally sent all the bills to her and she took care of everything. And so, you know, it was, it was just, again, for me in a, in a very, uh, you know, intense developmental period in my own life of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I had done some BOCES programs and internships in like architecture and engineering. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about going in that route, but I just was, I was not, I am not the kind of guy that can sit at a desk all day. Like it's just oh, no. not who I am. And so uh, those experiences early on were like, no, this, I, I can't. And then when I started getting into the sports medicine stuff, you know, cause like basically I always joke is like when you have, like that kind of injury. It's like you went to knee school, right? It's like <laughs> as a kid, I went to knee school because you're learning all these things about it. And, um, it just really that kind of, and then the second part of that was I never really was ev- ever able to achieve my prior level of performance. And, and that was a big influence on how I operate my business now and how I treat my athletes and kind of like my journey and continuing education and how I, became obsessed like with this movement piece and the performance side of things, because I just was a guy that was naturally gifted in high school. I could run a four, six forty, and I just never could be that guy again. And it, and it, and the injuries piled up in college. Like I just was always that guy that was hurt. Doesn't matter what I did. It felt like it, I just always ended up with a different injury. So like I tore up the labor of my hip, I had disc issues in my lower back and then I had ankle problems and just like the knee was like the catalyst that kind of rolled downhill. And like in my years after post-grad, I just became like obsessed with really figuring out my own issues. And it was selfishly motivated if I'm being honest. And it came from like that deep insecurity of like, kind of like an identity crisis as a human, because I just, you know, you grow up like, oh man, you're so good at lacrosse and you're, you know, you're going to get a full ride and you're going to get a scholarship and you're going to play at a big time D1. And, you know, and when you're 17, you start to believe your own hype, you know, and so, (laughs) which is a dangerous path to go down. And then when I just couldn't perform at the collegiate level, um, it really weighed on me. And I started having a lot of other issues like anxiety and depression and just not feeling like myself and, and so it really was driven out of that, which is where a lot of my continuing education came in and uh, kind of it really was the, the foundation for, you know, how I work with my athletes today. Absolutely. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think that gets forgotten that that's the identity of a lot of these kids. Oh, I'm a football player. I'm a basketball right. player. And like when you have a significant injury that's keeping you out, you know, uh, for a long time, multiple months, a year, you know, you really get lost on who you are. Cause you're not doing that sport anymore. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and unfortunately I think it's even worse now than it was 20 years ago when, when I was going through it, because, you know, like we have these parents that just, they don't know how to disassociate the role of being a parent and the role of like a coach or an yeah. athletic trainer or a re- college recruiter. And they try to be everything for these kids. And, the whole identity and even their identities become wrapped up in the kids sports. You know, when they're 12 and 13, they're taking them all over the country to play in these tournaments and, Oh, we got to play in this showcase. And it's like, well, 
no, you don't. And, <laughs> you know, it's important that a kid is a kid on some level and learns yeah. to socialize and have things that they're passionate about outside of the sport, because it doesn't matter who you are. We all have to face that day where you have to hang it up. And I work with professional athletes and even athletes that are long since retired from, from a career in professional sports. And that problem is a problem no matter what age you are. And honestly, I think it compounds itself as you get older, it becomes more and more difficult to cope with it. And so I really try to instill that in our younger athletes now, like instill the idea of like a work ethic and, um, you know, keeping things in perspective and yes, sports is important. And I know it's important to you, but think about the big picture, take the 30,000 foot view because you just, you never know when you're, when that day comes that it's, it's not, the juice ain't worth the squeeze anymore, you know? Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. it's just like, you, you know, and I, and that for me was after my sophomore year of college, injuries were just piling up. I had multiple concussion issues because I just wasn't the same guy. I wasn't the athlete I was and I changed the way I played. And, and then I had to have that conversation with my coach and my head athletic trainer. And they were just Mike, we just don't think this is for you anymore. Like, what's it worth? You're going to go play pro lacrosse, which again, at the time wasn't really a thing. It was a thing, but not in the sense that that could be your job. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and I had to make that decision. Like, do I take this step back and, and focus on my career, which, which was the obvious choice and what I did, because, you know, at that point it wasn't worth the damage to my body with the con multiple concussions. I was worried about long-term injuries, brain injuries, you know, cognitive decline, all these other things that again, 20 years ago, we were still, this was pre impact testing, pre baseline testing, pre yeah. All of that, really, your your screening for, to return an athlete to play was: Are you asymptomatic or not? And you know, I was an athletic training student, so I knew exactly what they were going to ask, and <laughs> I was able to manipulate that in my favor, but in my favor to get on the field, not to be healthy. And so, yeah. Another question to get to know you: What is your athletic training spirit animal? And this is a modality, rehab tool, tape, race, etc. Any tool of the trade, nothing's off limits, that represents you as a clinician my hands. I, um, I, like I, um, I have a, a thing on my website, um, mm -hmm. that I, that I wrote. It's kind of like the about Mike section. And, um, I've always, I, th I think I've always been a decent writer. Um, and it just kind of came out of me. And then when I read it back, it, it like actually made me emotional, but it's what the line is, you know, I'm on a, like, it's, it's kind of about like my journey as an athlete and how I had to change paths and the path was to become the best sports medicine practitioner that I could be and to heal as many people as I can with my head, my hands and my heart. And so that to me is kind of like the mantra of the movement underground. It's like, it even gets me like choked up now to think about that, but it's, you know, touch is such an impactful and powerful sense, uh, like uh, as far as like human perspective and perception goes, sensory perception. And I really don't think, outside of touch and movement, there are any other better modalities than those two. I think you can solve most people's issues with those two things only. Um, and, I, and again, I'm a techie guy. When I first got into athletic training, I was all about like, you know, frequency specific microcurrent and this and that and like all these different cool modalities. And again, my first job out of college was at the University of Florida. And so we really had basically unlimited resources, you know, so any newfangled tool, even if it had no evidence to support it, like we had it. Um, and so it was really allowed, you know, allowed me to explore a lot of different things, but the manual therapy stuff, I, I always saw, like I saw 
like my, my supervisor at that time, he was a really into manual therapy. And when I would watch him instantly change an athlete on the table, I was like, man, that's, that's where it's at. Um, so that, yeah, my spirit animal, I would say, or like my thing is definitely always been my hands, um, or just getting, you know, hands on doing the work. Uh, I think there's, the, it, it checks off all the three boxes as far as biopsychosocial, right? So we talk about a biopsychosocial approach to medicine or, or, or treatment or rehabilitation. It's the biological part. There's actual, a sensory interchange that's happening, right? So you're, you're feeding the nervous system information via that that mechanoreception or, or via that touch modality, you're able to connect with somebody or really learn about them or exchange as far as psychological, right? So sometimes it's just about listening to the athlete and hearing them out. You might be the first person to actually listen to what they had to say and what they think, well, it's true. And you know, how many times we go to a doctor and they, you know, they're looking at you through a clipboard or, you know Absolutely. what I mean? Or you're in the doc, you're in with the doc for two seconds and, 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 you know, we put the MD on the pedestal, but, like when you guys said before, it's, we really, you know, athletic trainers, we make an impact because of the time that we spend in the trenches with people. Right. And then there's that social part, which is, I think maybe even the most important part is, you know, like Randy and I could do exactly the same treatment on an athlete, but if, if he has that trust, if he has that relationship, it, this is not my opinion. This is like the data, like it's science. We measured it. You know, there's evidence to support this idea that because of that strong relationship, he's going to get a better outcome. Right. And again, maybe it's not an objective measure like, oh, he touched somebody and their strength improved, but the outcome that they get out of that experience is going to be greater. And that is evidence-based and that's part of what we do. So as far as the utility of manual therapy, it's like, obviously the theories have changed over the years and some things have been debunked and other things haven't. And the reality is, is human beings were highly, highly social animals. This is driven through millions of years of evolution. And when you touch somebody that changes both people and, and it's, and it's, and I think that's the part that I've always uh, put a heavy emphasis on as far as how I approached uh, taking care of my teams and my athletes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, athletes like, like that connection, you know, they want to want to feel connected to another person. And that's saying something important about if you can get someone to just feel good, like a lot of people knock that like, oh, you know, they feel good. Like, but did it really help? Well, clearly it did because they feel right. better. Like that, <laughs> right. that's, that's the whole that, goal. That's an outcome. Yeah. They feel better. So I think sometimes manual therapy gets that knock that like, oh, well, did it really do this or this? Like, yeah, but they feel better. So I think right. that's a worthwhile goal. Yeah. I think people just get so tunnel visioned on the, on the affect of manual therapy. It's like, if we're not making tissue level changes and it's not working, it's like, what's your definition of work then? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you, you know, like using the force and like completely like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like fixing somebody in one session, like let's be, that's ridiculous. And the the crazy part about that is, is like, who the hell's claiming that to begin with? Like if somebody's making that claim, like I could fix somebody in one session and they're a quack. And it's like, you're out of the conversation. We're not like, you're clearly on the marketing side of stuff and not the the reality of wh- what's expected or, or reasonable in clinical care. But you know, the real conversation is how do you help people feel better? How do you help them move better and ultimately getting them to move more, you know, or, or move at a higher level to take them to that next step in their game or their performance or injury prevention or whatever, you know, whatever other objective measure you want to use to, to look at success. Yeah, absolutely. 
So getting into our main entrepreneurship topic, we like here on AD Corner to pair evidence and experience. Mm -hmm. So Mike, if you could kick us off with a story or experience, a case study, something about owning your own business. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough because you got to really be willing to take that leap. And, and for me, I, I've always loved athletic training. I've always loved working with athletes specifically because I was that guy. Like I was the guy that like, I am now who I wish I had in my corner 20 years, 25 years ago, you know? And, and, and that version of me has manifested over time into what I'm doing now. And, and the entrepreneurship part of it kind of came in when I hit rock bottom as an athletic trainer, when I was ready to leave the profession. Um, I was overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. Um, especially at that time I had left the collegiate setting and went to the private PT setting. And, you know, here I am a guy that's, you know, I, I wasn't like the most experienced athletic trainer ever, but I'm five years out of school. I'd already worked at major division one institutions, you know, where I was in charge of the care of multi-million dollar athletes every single day. I was rehabbing and training athletes that were on Olympic teams from nine different countries. Um, you know, and I went from that to folding towels and <laughs> stretching people like off of a protocol. And it just was like the absolute most soul crushing thing, you know, for me as a professional, you know, to, I left the traditional setting because I just was burnt out. I, I just was, because I believed in this model of using my hands and doing the work for preventing. I, you know, I definitely would go, way above the call. You know, it's easy for us to say, this is what I get paid. So I'm going to do the bare minimum I'm going to do my job, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go the extra mile because it's just not worth it. And, and, and I, to be fair, I don't blame anybody for feeling that way, but I just couldn't do that. It just wasn't in my DNA. And so for me, I just, I just burnt the candle at both ends to the point where there was just nothing left to give. Honestly. Um, I was just so worn thin that I just had nothing left. And so I took a PT job because I just wanted a, a regular consistent schedule so that I could kind of re-piece my life together, you know, um, and have a salary that was at least livable. And again, this is, you know, 40 something grand in, in New York city is not really livable, if, but tough. it was certainly a far cry better than 30, um, you know, working 80 hours a week for 30 grand a year. And then I'm at least working a normal 40 hours a week. And I was, you know, here's a fun evidence story. I was bartending on the weekends to fund my athletic training career oh as my a God. person with a master's degree, right? That I would make more money bartending four nights a month than I would as a full-time certified athletic trainer wow. working at a division one school. And wow. so it just, it just destroyed me, man. It destroyed my soul. And I was like, you know what? Like at that point I was regular, I was ready to leave athletic training, get a real job. You know, I did my master's in sports management. So I, I had the foresight in my GA or my grad assistantship years to diversify my education just in case this, cause I already, I mean, we like, listen, nobody gets into this to make a million dollars a year. Like, let's be real. We do it because we love it. We do it because of the job that we get to do and, and, and the people that we get to work with. And it's a cool job. And I, don't come from means, you know, my, my family didn't come from money. And so like, I was really on my own. I had a lot of student debt. Like there's just so many factors that kind of like led to that decision. And so basically long story short, even though that was a long story <laughs> was, <laughs> was 
I figured I would roll the dice and I felt like I had the knowledge and I had the skills and I had the experience and the chops to do it better than I saw it being done in the private sector. At that time, there was no precedent for athletic training in, in private practice. I called the New York State licensing board. I spoke to three different people. I got three different answers. I reached out to the NATA. I reached out to anybody that I could find that wasn't in a traditional setting and spoke to whoever would call me back. And I still couldn't have, a, I read the practice act from cover to cover and I couldn't <laughs> find a real answer. And so I just decided I'd roll the dice. And, and if I failed, I was in exactly the same spot that I was in at that time. But if I didn't fail, or at least I was willing to double down on me in order to kind of stay in the profession, at least on some level. And so that was seven years ago. Nice. You know? That's and so I'm, awesome. Yeah, I'm still doing it. And, you know, um, it's really cool, man. It's really cool to see. And the crazy part about it all was in the time since I opened my business and started producing content, only a handful of times has anybody even asked me. Um, and not to say that I, I, that I don't think it matters, but what my background is, like what my licensure mm. is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what people don't realize is that people will just want to pay for a result. And yes, mm -hmm. you should be licensed and credentialed and have all that stuff in place. But I think a lot of athletic trainers are afraid to because they're not physical therapists or they're not massage therapists or they're not chiros. And, and a lot of athletic trainers jump into other programs and get more education to do the same thing that they're currently doing. And I think there's a lot of people we can help within our lane and within the scope of practice as an athletic trainer and people will pay for it. People will pay for results and for somebody to be in their corner and, and have the relationship with the clinician that our athletes have every single day. And I'm living proof that that's the case. Yeah, that's awesome. So speaking of taking that leap, what steps did you take to start your practice? Um, so, you know, obviously outside of like what I just said about like calling and, and tr doing my due diligence to see what like kind of the legal status of it was. Um, what I was able to do at that time was secure standing orders from a physician that I had developed a relationship with, a close relationship with through my traditional experience at working at one of the schools. Um, he was going through the phase of entering retirement, but he loved the idea and he, and he, he, he was a fan of mine and we worked really well together. And so he was willing to back me on that because I wasn't sure. So I got my standing orders. I formed my LLC. Um, got the insurances in place, you know, to cover the liability of my business, personal liability insurance, all those things. And, and that was it, you know, and then I was treating and training athletes just like I'd always been doing. And, you know, obviously the marketing side of stuff took some time and that's where like social media kind of started to come in. I wasn't a big social media fan at that time. Like I had a Facebook, <laughs> I had an Instagram. I was the guy that kind of scrolled through and saw what other people were doing, but I never would post much you know? And then, you know, I started following like Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. And I'm like, man, like if I really want to get my message out there, I have to start producing content. And so at the time I had just done it purely from a needs perspective of marketing to bring mm -hmm. new clients to the door. And what actually happened completely changed my life. Like in, in so many in so many ways, it changed my life. Like the people I've met, the relationships I've made and created, you know, teaching for rock tape, um, you know, 
being considered an expert in my field, regardless of the educational background, again, which I do think is still very, very strong on the athletic training side of the fence. But I think when we, when it comes to public perspective, um, perception, we think as athletic trainers that people don't value us because we don't have a, a DPT or an, you know what I mean? And, and that's not true at all. Like, you know, I, I do six figures, multiple six figures a year in revenue. And you can ask all those customers. They don't care. It's they care about the result and the experience and what you're able to do with them and for them. And that's ultimately what will pay the bills. I love that you're giving that perspective because I feel like especially young professionals, they just see a glass ceiling or a limit of what athletic trainers can do and what other professionals who have their own businesses and have their own practices are doing that we, a lot of us are not doing. I mean, let's just do this right now. It's like for everybody, if you're a young athletic trainer and thinking about maybe one day that a business might be or entrepreneurship. And first of all, like entrepreneurship isn't the easy way. Like this isn't for everybody. It's just not, I mean, um, but you're looking at a, a, a field of people who work a ton of hours, who are absolutely dedicated to what they do, who have a skill set to help people. It's like, you're already doing everything that you'd have to do to be an entrepreneur. You're already putting in the hours. I got to work 80 hours a week. I still do, but I'd rather work 80 hours a week for myself than 40 hours a week for somebody else at this point in my life. Like I'll never go back to working for somebody else. And even like one of, like I work with multiple athletes from professional organizations And I have, you know, in the winter, we get a lot of our pro baseball guys back. Like, hey, would you ever take a job? Like, I've been offered jobs in Mm -hmm. in major league organizations or minor league organizations. And it's like, it'd be less money, Mm -hmm. as much work, and, and having to be back in that pipeline of like, well, the doctor said don't do it, so don't do it. I'm like, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. It's just not, you know, it'd have to be the really the right scenario to pull me away from what I'm doing now. But, um you know, so I think athletic trainers have the chops for entrepreneurship. Like if you could work in the trenches as hard as we do in a traditional setting, then you have the ability to do that for yourself. Um, the hardest part is the transition where you're doing both. You're working on your business and you're working for somebody else and transitioning into that because you have to have it make you enough money where you can say, Mm -hmm. all right, if I was just able to put the rest of my time into this, what could it be? And then that's the kind of the sticking point for a lot of people is, are they willing to work more hours? But if you're working eight to 10 hours a day for yourself, you owe it to yourself to put an hour or two in it for you. Like you guys do, you know, you guys don't have to do a podcast. It's extra work. And you know, you don't necessarily get paid for that work, but the idea is that you put it out there and you, and you provide something of value for everybody else, just because you're providing value and that eventually it'll take off and be something that pays you back. I think that's what gets a lot of people nervous when they start thinking like, oh, I want to do my my own business. I want to start my practice is that initial cost or that initial time investment. Because like you said, you can't a lot of people don't have the means to just jump ship from where they're at. Oh, and one of the and one of the areas that's really tough is just finding a space to be able to do their practice. So how did you go about finding a space and initial equipment to actually start treating patients? So, uh, that's a great question. So at the time I was working at a physical therapy clinic and and this particular clinic was in New York city and their whole stipulation was, okay, I'm, I was basically working as like an assistant, like an aid position, but mm-hmm. they had a full gym set up, 
right? And it was like a very traditional, like old school bodybuilding, like machines for everything kind of gym setup. More like what you would consider like a classic physical therapy situation. But when they hired me, they're like, here's here's the additional bonus of working for us is you could start your own personal training business. We're not going to tell you what to charge, but you they have to be a member of our gym and you, they, you have to pay a $20 fee to the house per session. I was like, okay, fair. <laughs> so I started to work in the clinic and then as just doing my thing, helping people with exercise, helping them with modifications of their programs at home or their sports or, you know, again, this is in a very influential area of New York City, highly affluent. All these people are, you know, big time like hedge fund finance. Like these are people of, you know what I yeah. mean? Money's yeah. not an issue <laughs> that they would have such a good experience with me that they'd say, Hey Mike, I, I my insurance just discharged me. I'm not doing physical therapy anymore, but is there any way that we could continue this? And cause I've made so much progress. Awesome. Now I've signed them on as a personal training client. So within six months to a year, I had a very solid booking of training clients and that I was actually doing a little bit of manual work with them. Cause these are all people coming off injuries, you know, like 10 or 15 minutes of some manual therapy stuff, 45 minutes of training. Here's your program for the rest of the week. And I was doing really well. I was like doubling my income, just, just doing that. You know, so I'd work my eight hour shift, train for two or three hours after or before. And I had the makings of my first little side hustle. And then, then what started to happen was the owners of the clinic saw me doing well and they didn't like this. No, no, no. They didn't (laughs) like this at all. They are of, and this is what you'll run into. And, um, one of, um, I haven't done it yet, but I have a blog post that I'm working on for my website, my new website. That's like reading materials that I, that I thought were really helpful, but for any young entrepreneurial spirited athletic trainers out there, the 48 laws of power by Robert green. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book, but it's kind of about power and it's infinite and excellent and horrific way that people take advantage of each other or work together. Lots of social implications, political implications, but the first rule of the 48 laws of power, the first law is never outshine the master. It's like if you're in a position where you're subservient to somebody else and you begin to outshine them, they are going to use their influence to crush you. And that's exactly what happened. And that happened to me at multiple levels in my career because I was always that young, passionate, hardworking, like, you know, cross the T's, dot the I guy. And I'd get a lot of attention, but the people who were above me didn't like that, you know, because that outshines them in a way. And so what do they do? It's not like they work harder. They just put you in your place. Mm -hmm. And so then they started raising my fee. Oh, Mike, listen, you know, it's gotta be 30 bucks a session, then a 40 bucks a session, then 50 bucks a session. Then they wanted half. And I basically was just like, F you, because all of these people that I'm working with, they all have their own gym memberships. They all have amazing facilities in their elite high rise buildings in New York city. So I just started, I have my table still right here. It's a, my (laughs) first portable treatment table. Uh, it's an Astrolite table. It was a Canadian company. They don't make them anymore. The company's folded, but it's 19 pounds. So it's really light. And I used to jump turnstiles in New York city with it. Like I'd <laughs> leave the clinic and I would be in the, I'd be like running around New York city with my Graston set and my, and my, and my portable table. And I just went to people's buildings and started doing it that way. And I charged a little bit more. And, you know, after about a year of doing that, I realized, wow, people will pay pretty much anything I ask because I started like throwing ridiculous numbers out there just to see if people would say yes. Mm-hmm. So like at first I was charged like, Oh, give me 90 bucks a session. And by the end of that year, I was like 
hey, it's a 200 a session. And people are like, okay. Like, shit okay <laughs> well if i could i mean i was again like even you know, think about that two people a day 400 400 a day i was never coming close to that yeah um and so that's where and then i just i took that money and kind of reinvested it into either more continuing education um you know more resources business resources and then when I made the move out to Long Island, which is where I'm at now, it was with a former classmate who was a strength and conditioning coach. He wanted to start a sports performance gym. I was in the process of negotiating with some CrossFit gyms in New York City to do like a little sports medicine thing. And then we had just decided that, you know, I was less into CrossFit, to be honest. I just saw it as an opportunity. Um, but I was really, I've always really been into like traditional field sports, you know, that athletic training setting. And, you know, we teamed up and at that time I didn't have the resources to invest in a business, but he did. And, um, so I was kind of a sweat equity guy and, and that partnership ended up not working out long-term. Um, so that was before the movement underground, but it was the, the experience that I got during those three or four years was that I, I am a, I am a, a dangerous guy in, in my area, as far as, as far as sports medicine goes and, and people were starting to talk about it. And I started to really grow a following on YouTube and Instagram. And, um, so that made it a little bit easier to take the leap and spend the money that, that I had to, to, to open up my own shop. But it's a process. Again, you know, you start with what you have, you don't need a lot. You need, you know, online, you got to make sure all your legal stuff's in place, an LLC, again, a few hundred bucks to get an LLC done for you. You know, you need a skill set, which again, hopefully you already have that. And you just have to get people to have a good experience with you and slowly but surely it'll happen. I think that's the hard part too, is that it's, it is a slow process. It's, you're not going to wake up one day and have a fully <laughs> flourishing business. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, you know, I recently had hired on a physical therapist who was a, a new grad physical therapist. He had interned for me a little bit and good, good young guy, but very impatient. And he was like, I don't want to work with nobodies. I want to work with pro athletes like you. And I'm like, bro, I'm like, I've been doing this for 16 years, man. You know what I mean? And like, A, you're in year one and I'm in year 16. So you can't compare where you're at to where I'm at. It's just, A, it's not fair to you. B, it's not fair to me, and C, it's an apples and oranges comparison. Like yeah. you're just not there yet. I don't, I don't give a shit what your credential. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to curse. Um, what your credential is? Like, great, you have a DPT that doesn't. You you know the basic entry level stuff. That that's what you know, and you, you're going to have to build those skills over years. And and like and the other part that bothered me about that statement, we no longer work together, and this is part of this, is that what's your definition of a nobody? Because that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Most of my clients aren't traditional athletes in that sense. They're just physically active people that enjoy an active lifestyle and want more help than they get through the traditional medical model, or they want to be more proactive than reactive. Fair. But like some of them are lawyers that have helped me with my business. I have some that are financial people that do taxes and, or investments that have helped me with my business. Like you never know. And this is, this is a message I think for all young athletic trainers is, Everything you do, everything you say, the way you interact with people, your superiors, the way you interact with your athletes, your parents, your coaches, all of it is not just a reflection on you. It's a reflection of our entire profession. So I, I, one of the things that I say to young athletic trainers is take stock of the things that you say and how you say it. Because all that bitching and moaning and complaining of that you do to other people 
is exactly what's wrong with the profession. It's not the NATA and the BOC. It's you. Like, look in the mirror. What have you done to elevate the game? What have you done to elevate the profession? What, take your last minute CEUs on whatever <laughs> CEU megacorp in, you know, in the next four days and you know, that's, that's what you're considering professional development and you get, you bitch and moan when, when you're getting paid a subpar salary. Well, A, stop saying yes to that subpar salary and B, hold yourself to a damn higher standard. You know, sorry if that makes people upset, but like, like I didn't just like fall into this, you know, like I was the guy in my twenties because I was so horribly depressed about where I was as an athlete and what had happened with my athletic career that I went home and read research and I took online courses and I went and took that money that I had that I made for my private clients and went and did FMS and SFMA and Graston and ART and all these continuing ed courses to invest in myself so that I had the skills to give people a higher level of surface that they could get anywhere else. And so you guys kind of hit the nail on the head as people get scared of, of, of what they're able to do, but it's, you're, you're, at that point, you're scared of the wrong thing. Not what are you able to do? It's like, what are you doing? That's what you should be afraid of. You should be afraid of not doing enough. And so I think for me, it was, I was motivated to live a life that was better than where I was at. Like I didn't want to live hand to mouth anymore. And I, and I had hit rock bottom and I never want to go back there again. And that's still the things that drive me even all these years later. And also I think being your own boss kind of helps too. That's also kind of nice. Well, at the, well, again, it depends on the type of person you are. And I, and I yeah. think here's what happens when I, when something goes wrong at the movement underground, there's one person that's f- at fault and that's me. Yeah. And some, and I think I've developed into a mindset, into a person where I can take that and grow from it. Some people it's hard. It's hard to look in the mirror and look at, and that's why I'm kind of, I'm being very demonstrative in the way I say, like, look at yourself in the mirror. What are you doing? Because if you're, if you're complaining about your role in, in, in the world or in your profession, then, but that role is defined by you, not by other people, not by the system, right? I came up in the same system that you guys are coming up in. Is it perfect? No. Is it flawed? Absolutely. But that's not an excuse. You know, you you could have a DPT and still not make money in the private sector. Like that's probably the case more often than not. You could be a Cairo and not make any money. You could be an MD. Well, maybe not an MD, but (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It's like if you're going to accept that subservient role and not do anything to better your situation as an athletic trainer, then that's exactly what your career is going to end up being and manifesting. That's just the way it is, you know, and that's, that's the biggest thing that I see having been in a, in a continuing education role for, you know, a few years now that a lot of young ATs are just not willing to put invest in themselves. You know, they do the bare minimum. Well, how do you get your CEUs? Oh, you go to conference because the school pays for it. Okay, what'd you learn at conference? Oh, how to drink your face off for four days in some random city? Like that doesn't make you a better athletic trainer or lead to career development. That's just you taking advantage of a free weekend, which is, again, if that's what you want to do and that makes you happy, by all means, boo-boo, do your thing. But don't complain at that point that you didn't leverage the connections that you could make at NATA or or learn something new clinically that could really help your athletes because those athletes are your customers and what they do when they graduate and how they talk about you is like, I get referrals from athletes that I worked with years ago 
that I haven't seen or spoken to in years that send that next up and coming player my way because now they're coaching or now they're part of an organization or they, they have a teammate who's really hurting and, and getting mismanaged. And all of a sudden now they're another customer. Like every single person we interact with is a potential referral source. And, you know, maybe in a traditional setting, you're not reaping the direct financial benefit of that, but you have to treat your reputation as such. As such. Absolutely. So outside of the that initial um, investment, that initial, hey, I'm doing this, I'm starting my business, what other challenges have you faced with your practice going forward as it develops? Uh, well, kind of like where I'm at now. Like I've, I've built a really robust business for myself. And, and the problem with building it for myself is that I'm having a difficult time scaling that to other people, right? And so, so for me, I spend a lot of time working in my business and less time working on it than I would like to. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have another athletic trainer, Brian, that works under me and phenomenal clinician, fantastic athletic trainer because he's put the time in and he's been working with me for two years, two, you know, two plus years at this point. Um, but it's when people get to choose, they still choose me because, you know, I'm the guy and, you know, it's Mike Stella ATC that has the big following on Instagram and on on YouTube. And so you know, it's funny, the call I have after this call is with an ad agency, a media agency that's going to hopefully help me figure out ways to to expand beyond just myself. And a lot of that is like on the branding and the marketing side. And, you know, again, I have a business background, but there's, we're always the worst at assessing our own stuff. Like as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, my operation works really, really well, but you bring in somebody who's a, a brand manager and they might see a lot of holes in what I'm doing. And so that's kind of where I'm at now is figuring out which fingers I have to put in to stuff the holes that I've created for myself. But, um, you know, scaling is definitely an issue. Human resources are an issue. Finding good people that are willing to hustle and, and put the work in. Like, I think now the issue I run into is like, everybody wants to get paid a lot to do the bare minimum. It's like, sorry. Like, I'd rather just do it myself at that point. Like, I don't need you, <laughs> but you know, you do need people. And, and so yeah. what I'm focused on now is, is really grooming young, hungry clinicians that have an entrepreneurial spirit. So if any ATs out there looking for some work, I'm hiring, uh, in the New York area, not the easiest place to live, but we do it. Um, <laughs> so trying to look at, to expanding the team again. Do you miss anything from traditional athletic training? Oh God. Yeah. All the time. I miss, I miss the travel. I miss being in the trenches and being on the road with my athletes. And, you know, when I was at UF, like we'd get on flights and be like, Oh, what, 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 you know, I worked at track and field was my main sports. Be like, Oh, what, what event do you do? I'd be like, Oh, I'd throw the indoor javelin. doesn't exist. Uh, you know, cause I, cause people would think I was an athlete, which is kind of cool. Um, but like, you know, just interacting with the coach again, in my little environment, our little ecosystem that we've created here, we have a strength and conditioning facility that we're attached to a baseball and softball development, you know, indoor cages and tunnels. So we do get a lot of that same team camaraderie that I got in the, in the traditional team settings. Um, but yeah, I would say just like interacting with the athletes on the day to day and, and kind of like being on the field and watching, watching games. And, uh, that part of it was always really enjoyable for me. I always loved you know, watching my athletes perform and, and seeing kind of the work that we were doing translate to the field. That was always super like intrinsically valuable to me, but I still get to do that on some level, which is awesome. Like even like I have some UFC and professional MMA fighters that I work with 
that had fights this past weekend and I'm watching on like UFC fight pass. It's just so cool, you know, to see them do their thing and, and kick some serious ass and, and just to know that you have a, you know, and see my logo on their banner. It's just a really <laughs> cool and validating thing, you know, um, that, that they're, that they're able to take what we're doing and, and make it work for them, which is awesome. So, um, I should have guessed you worked track when you said you have an astrolite. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> exactly. where it's at. Oh, hells yeah. Dude, these things are vintage now, man. Mine's mint yes. too. It was custom. I went and spent the money. Listen, I'm like, not that I had a lot of money at that time, but like, <laughs> you know, listen, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for, you know? I know what my time is worth and I know what my stuff is worth and and I'm willing to just work with the people who see that. And, and if you don't see that, that's cool. And I, 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 again, and it's like, even like I'll get clients that come in for an assessment they're like, Hey Mike, I really want to work with you, but I have this prescription to go to PT through my insurance. So I'm just going to go do that. And guess what happens three months later, they're right back here being like, I should have just done this three months ago because ice and stim and straight leg raises for three months basically did nothing. I'm like, this is my shocked face that it did nothing, you know? <laughs> you know? So it's like, I understand my price, you know, people are like, Oh, your prices are too high. I can get it. I can get it cheaper somewhere else. I'm like, listen, my prices are what they are. It's, they might be out of your budget, which is again, understandable, but that doesn't, that don't, that's not on me. That's, that's a, you, that's a, you know, a you question to answer, not a me question. So it's like, I have clients that pay more, so it's fine. So I think, uh, Mike's going to vibe well with the action item. He's a man of action. Oh yeah. What's what's an action item? Mike, what advice do you have for ATs, young ATs, seasoned ATs who are looking into starting their own business? If you could sum it all up. The only limits that you put on your career are the ones that you put there yourself. That's it. Be patient. It takes time. You know, like even going back to like the interaction thing, like hold yourself to the highest possible standard. Aim for that. And you will fall short and you're going to fail and that's fine. You're going to have your moments where you break down that you just can't deal. That's okay. But at least if you're shooting for that target and you miss, you're still better off than having done the bare minimum. You know, I'm just like, I can really empathize because I was the same. I was there. I understand. I get it. You know, I, I spent, you know, I, I used to say I spent half my career in the traditional setting. And now that it's been years, that's not the, that's not the truth anymore, which is kind of messed up. But, um, you know, I spent more, more years as an entrepreneur than as a traditional athletic trainer. But I remember, you know, I remember working hundred hour weeks. I remember getting paid $6 and 50 cents an hour. I remember holidays and nighttime travel that were considered my off days and all of it. But you don't realize the, in the, experience that you're sitting on is absolutely freaking gold. You don't realize you don't have to go to school to practice under a different license. Like what other healthcare provider gets this experience on field injury, initial assessment before anybody else, physician referral, possible surgery, post surgical rehabilitation, reconditioning that athlete with strength and conditioning, and then back to on field competition. I'll wait. Tell me somebody else who does that. And I think people, undervalue athletic training gets knocked because it's not specific enough, right? That's why the BOC is putting in these specialty certifications, right? They're following suit with the other professions because we're not specific enough. Therefore it's not valuable, but there are no generalists in orthopedic medicine. There are no generalists, like even an orthopedic surgeon, they're not generalists. They're specialists in whatever joint that they do. And that's all they do. 
right? So if you got a knee problem, a chronic knee problem, A, I can promise you it's not your knee. And B, if you only look at your knee for an answer, you're only going to get a knee solution yeah. to that problem, right? The system is inherently flawed. And if you can be a savagely good generalist and really help people prioritize where their issues are, strategize their recovery, work on things like dosing, work on things like movement, help them in the short term with things like manual therapy and some modalities, you are absolutely freaking dangerous. You are absolutely freaking dangerous and people will pay for that. Like I can't stress this enough. People will pay for that. We think they won't, but they will. People will pay for results. So um, shoot super high, hold yourself to a ridiculously high standard, invest in yourself for God's sakes, like invest in yourself. Nobody can ever take that away from you. And then also know where your boundaries are as a person. You know, if, so, if you're being taken advantage of at work, it's because you're allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. Put your foot down, draw the line, tell people that this is not what I'm going to do. And this is the reason why, right? I think a lot, we athletic trainers by nature are very agreeable people, which means they're very easy to manipulate and they're very easy to take advantage of because people will just work and work and work and work on the hope that their merit alone is going to justify their raise. But I promise you, you know, my last division one job, I documented every single treatment I did from a bandaid to a full on manual therapy intervention and what the reasonable and customary cost would be. And I presented that to my athletic director because I wanted to raise from 30 grand to 46 grand, which was what I determined was the bare minimum for me to live on my own and pay my bills and my student loans. And they said, well, we'll give you 33. And I said, deuces. And I left. That was the best thing I ever did for myself. And did I leave a lot of athletes and coaches that I loved working with? Yes, I did, but I wasn't going to do it. I was like, I knew what my value was. Um, you know, I had taken a kid from Tommy John surgery to drafted having never thrown a pitch and I'm not trying to blow smoke up my own ass, but that's the fact I rehab that kid every single day. I went out and threw with him on the field three days a week and he got drafted having never thrown a pitch in a collegiate game. So your, your skills are there. You just gotta, you gotta be your own advocate be your own advocate first. And by advocating for yourself, you're advocating for all of us. Absolutely. The impact of an AT. Can't, can't deny it. What great motivation to start the new year. Let's go. 2022 is what you can, what you will make of it. What you will make it. You got to shoot. Like you got to have lofty goals, set those loft. Just like we tell our athletes, like don't shoot for just getting back to where you were prior to your injury, shoot for better than that. This is an opportunity for you, right? And if you're, if, if you're an AT and you're out there and you're unhappy with what you're doing, then change something. Take stock in what you're unhappy about. And if it's financial, go start a side hustle. If you're willing to work, like ask yourself, like how much are you willing to work for that extra amount of money that would make you happy? A, it's never going to make you happy, but you'll start to learn your value. And then you can start to really progress from there. But like I said, I have mentorship on my website. One of the things I'm most passionate about is teaching and sharing this journey with other athletic trainers. You can go to MikeStellaMovement.com. There's a mentorship page. You can literally book time on my schedule with me and I will, whatever it is, business consulting, clinical mentorship. If I can add value to your career, if you think you know, a one-on-one time is something that would benefit you and, and help you strategize, book it up. Let's do it. I'm in. Um, and yeah, you got to pay for it. But again, it's, it's, 
you know, my time is valuable. I'm, I'm, I'm offering that time up for you guys because I want this for every athletic trainer. Like what I'm able to do, what I'm doing now, I want this for everybody. This is how we change the game. If there are more high paying entrepreneur, if the entrepreneurship becomes a road that more people are willing to walk, it increases, it decreases the current supply of ATs in traditional settings. And it increases the demand for our skill set. This is economics 101. That's how you raise the pay grade, not by raising the minimum education, not by making us jump through more CE hoops, you know, by requirement. It's by by raising the value of what we do. And if people don't see that value, then they're not worth your time. And they'll either make those mistakes and learn, or you know, you're gonna move on to something bigger and better. So don't invest in yourself. It's so, so valuable. I can't stress that enough. Absolutely. This has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Okay. Now do you understand where I'm coming from when I said, if you need some motivation? You know, I think the, the best word to describe one, this interview and also just Mike himself is he's passionate. Very. He very loves, passionate. he loves what he does and he really works very hard to provide the best care for, he can for anyone who comes his way. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, a patient or an athlete, even his fellow ATs. Like, like we said, like he does enjoy mentoring young ATs. So he's just a very passionate guy. Speaking of the new year, if you want to get those CEUs done early or at least started early, maybe that's your resolution. I, I feel like that's a good move. You don't want to be that last minute person. I know that's so 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we do have free CEUs. Five episodes will always be eligible. Thank you to Precision AT. The rest can be available for purchase. Make sure you go to the show notes to see which ones are eligible. And then also, if you guys are looking for more of a subscription service, um, we have a partnership with MedBridge and they do $175 off if you use our code AT Corner and also help support the show. So make sure you go check those out. All those things are going to be in the show notes as well as our link to our Facebook group where you can connect and network with other athletic trainers. Yes, absolutely. You got anything else, Randy? Nope, that was perfect. Thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye. Bye.